The Guardian. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Tom Clark. In these tough economic times that we keep hearing about, here's a question for you. What is money anyway? Of course, it's those bits of metal and paper that you can swap for more useful things like food, shelter and devices for listening to podcasts. But how does it work and what's it based on? And why does it change in value? And how is it that banks can just whip it up out of thin air? It's basic questions such as these that are at the very heart of what's happening in Europe just now. Governments are running out of money and many want the European Central Bank to simply create more of it. But, as this week's guest will explain, it might not be quite that simple. As we record, the euro has tumbled in value against the dollar overnight and the S&P Ratings Agency has put the whole of the euro currency zone on a negative outlook for the next six months. Joining me in the studio is Philip Coggan of The Economist magazine, who is also the author of a new book on money and debt called Paper Promises. It grapples with one of the greatest economic crises we have known by looking at global monetary history as a whole, from Chinese experiments with paper money through to the American populist campaign for a bimetallic alternative to the 19th century gold standard. Now, Philip, it won't surprise you to know that neither me nor many of our listeners will know a great deal about that. But taking your longer view, what lessons would you draw from that for European leaders who are struggling so badly this week? Well, history is a battle between creditors and debtors. And money also has two functions. And that's how that battle plays itself out. So money is, as you say, a means of exchange, you can get onto the Guardian podcast, you can buy your Starbucks. And if you're a uh, debtor, then you want a lot more money. And if you want, you want more money as a means of exchange. If you're a creditor, you want the supply of money to be restricted, because money's other function is as a store of value. So you want to make sure that your money buys roughly the same basket of goods the next year as it did this year. Now, that's the tension that's existed all through history and is playing itself out again now. The Germans are the creditor nation. They want to make sure that the value of the euro stays solid. The Greeks, the Italians, the French even, you would argue, are the debtor nations which want to make sure that the economy doesn't contract through the lack of money as a means of exchange to keep things going. So they want the European Central Bank to print more money, to create more money, to keep trade flowing. And that battle plays out every 40 years or so. So we had a battle in the 1970s when the fixed exchange rates ended, and in the 1930s when the gold standard ended and we had the Great Depression. What you're saying is there is a battle about this because so little is really fixed in anything real. We've got a whole load of electronic promises, if you like, that are pegged to a load of premises that are just about paper, which in turn are based on almost nothing at all. And so it's all up for grabs. Exactly. Our ancestors would have found it extraordinary that we were trading paper and electronic money with no root at all. If you look at your £5 note, it says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of £5. And that, in the old days, meant you could go to the bank with your piece of paper and get some gold out or some silver, some real money. Your paper money was just like a certificate to say you had real money. Now, after 1970, all that changed. 
And there are various figures in history. John Law is another one you didn't mention back in the early 18th century who argued that real wealth was not gold or silver. Real wealth was the factories we have, the farms that produce goods. And if you just produced more money, then you would create more real wealth and not worry about gold and silver, which are kind of what Keynes later called a barbarous relic. But our faith in money essentially depends on our faith in the government to stand behind it. So the fact that other people accept our £5 notes is because it's legal tender. And when you get an economy which breaks down, like in Zimbabwe or in Germany in the 1920s, people lose all faith in the government standing behind that money and start to look for alternatives. So the dollar in the case of Zimbabwe or, you know, real physical assets, sometimes cigarettes, even in wartime Germany, for example. And the problem we have at the moment is that governments have accumulated so much debt that people now doubt their ability to repay it. And in Europe specifically, countries like Greece and Italy cannot create more money on their own. They have to depend. They cannot finance themselves at reasonable rates. So they have to depend on being bailed out by their neighbours. And so that's the nature of the crisis we have now. We don't have more debt, though, do we, compared with, I don't know, after the Second World War when we'd been, or after the Napoleonic Wars, I think I read, that there was, relative to the national income, there was even more debt. Is it really that much of a debt crisis? Well, there are are two ways to answer that question. The first is that after the Second World War, we had a lot of people in uniform, we had a lot of factories destroyed. So as we brought those people back into productive work, there was a spurt of growth and there was a spurt of inflation that eroded the debt away. Also, the population was growing relatively fast. But in Europe as a whole, Britain's slight exception growing, uh, its population growing a bit more fast, we have a period where demographics are against us. So the economic growth consists of having more workers and making them more productive. And over the next 30 30 to 40 years, Europe will have fewer workers, not more, as the baby boomers retire. So it's hard to get a lot of growth out of that situation. It's hard to grow out of your debt. The other way of looking at it is, yes, we had a lot of government debt as we came out of the Second World War. We didn't have so much private sector debt. People didn't have credit cards. Companies used to run themselves much more conservatively. Now we have in Britain about 460% debt to GDP ratio if you add up all the debts of the government, the private sector, banks, households, and so on. And what we saw in 2008 was if the private sector gets into trouble, then governments feel they have to stand behind it. Spain is another good example. Spain's debt to GDP ratio for the government is only 50% or so. But because the banks are so large and because the construction sector borrowed so much to build houses, that's why people are worried about Spain, that the government will feel it has to stand behind the rest of the economy. And all of these, I mean, debts wouldn't matter, would it, if it was, they'd cancel out if it was just money that we lent to each other and everything had stayed the same. But something's changed. Is it, is it, we borrowed this money from abroad or is it that we borrowed it backed by some asset that's now not worth anything. Exactly. It's that last point. We borrowed to buy an asset. So if you think about it, when things are going well, the bank lends somebody money to buy a house. The house rises in value. That means the bank has more security. It likes lending money against houses. It lends more money. People have more money to buy houses. House prices go up and the whole thing is positive circle. But when things are negative, think about this. The bank has lent money against a house in, I don't know, Miami, let's say. The house is now worth half what it was before. So the borrower thought he had an asset, the house. It's not worth as much as it was before. The lender thought they had an asset, the loan. And that's not worth as much as it was before because the borrower can't repay it. So both people have 
lost out. And that's the problem for the modern economy. A lot of debt has been secured against asset prices. So it really is. <laughs> we really all are worse off then. Uh, in terms of one thing you bring up very interestingly in the book is the way that people who are owed money always have a slight feeling of moral superiority over the feckless and wicked um, borrowers and the borrowers likewise um, bitterly resent the usurious people who gave them the money in the in the first place and therein lies a lot of political tension just talk about how that applies across Europe at the moment where it's often said you know the, the Germans feel like they're bailing out the Greeks and the Portuguese is there is there something in the structure of how the euro set up that means that that's almost destined to happen that's the north is almost destined to rely on the fecklessness in inverted commas of the south yes definitely in in many countries of course in britain as well you have a central authority which allocates money to poorer regions and because we all feel a collective sense of britishness though sometimes not everybody in scotland and northern ireland say may feel that uh, then we're all happy to go along with that system but when europe was set up you had some competitive economies like Germany, the Netherlands, and some economies which weren't very competitive, like obviously Greece. And there was no central mechanism for allocating funds to those peripheral economies, at least not there's the odd EU grant, but nothing on the scale needed. Now, up until the euro was existed, what happened was Greece and Italy ran into a problem, they devalued their currency, that made them competitive again. And we chugged on to the next crisis. But under the euro, of course, they can't devalue their currency. So the only way they can get their current economies more competitive again is by cutting their wages and their prices. And that means years of austerity, which voters are very un unwilling to put up with. And that's why the current solutions which are being discussed involve, yes, Germany, the Netherlands paying over money to the poorer countries, but also voters in those poorer countries losing the ultimate power over their domestic budgets. So it's a very interesting challenge for democracy. Already we've said that technocrats, central bankers can set interest rates and politicians should stay out of it. Now we're going to say that technocrats should set budgets, the overall balance between taxes and spending, and voters should stay out of that too. Now, what does that leave voters to decide on? And of course, it gets you into the question of how long can they stay as technocrats if they're telling you, oh, we're going to cut your wage by 15% this month, then um, they might be <laughs> below the fray rather than above it quite soon. Yes, exactly. I mean, the new governments of Greece and Italy are run by people who haven't been elected to parliament. And indeed, the Italian government is almost entirely outsiders. Now, people can accept that in a crisis for a few months, perhaps, that something has to be done. But if it's year after year after year, then I think that's going to be a problem. And also look at Ireland, for example. The last government under Brian Cowan was chucked out because people were very dissatisfied with the way he's run the economy. The new Prime Minister, Enda Kenny, just announced a new set of austerity programmes, uh, which are very similar to the ones proposed by the last government. So once you've tried both the main parties and they've delivered exactly the same mix, you then start to wonder whether extreme parties of the right or left might become more popular. So that's a, a slightly frightening thought. Is What are the chances, though, of muddling through? I mean, uh, we know that the outlines of this grand bargain that Merkel and Sarkozy are uh, supposedly talking about this week, which is that on the one hand, there will be bigger bailouts than we've seen up until now. On the other, there'll be some coordinating central authority, whether it's the European Court or the European Commission, that will be empowered to go in and give the yay or nay to um, budgets that are too profligate or whatever. What are the chances of that sort of an arrangement rescuing the situation? 
Well, I think we can muddle through for a little bit. The bargain they're trying to do at the moment is that in a return for an agreement on some sort of fiscal compact, the European Central Bank will then step in and buy bonds and drive down yields. And we saw on Monday night the yields on Italian and, and Spanish bonds fall quite sharply. So confidence had come back a little bit. Yes. The trouble with that is it doesn't solve the medium-term problem that Italy, Greece, Spain aren't competitive relative to Germany. So they will continue to run up debts. And the other issue is that the price that Germany will demand for that is austerity. And austerity will mean that the economies of those countries will probably shrink in 2012 and 2013. So again, the voters of those countries may feel that this is a pretty bad deal and may prefer to uh, devalue, default on their debts and try and start again. And that's exactly what happened in the 1930s. Politicians, central bankers all said, we must stay on the gold standard. It's vital for confidence. We must do everything necessary. Mm. But eventually, one by one, uh, Britain was an early mover. Uh, They all gave up and decided to cut their links with gold and devalue their currencies. France, being the last to do it in 1936, was one of the countries that suffered worst in the 1930s through the Great Depression. So it's just implausible in a democracy that year after year you can impose austerity. Um, In the British case, for example, we now have uh, a plan for seven years of austerity. And it, it seems unknown in history that any country has gone that long with that kind of program well i mean we're used to this argument now almost used to it that 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 you get between the keynesians who are saying you know that this is all mad we should be we should be spending more money in order to get the economy going again which sounds like it's got a logic um from what you were saying there about austerity becoming self-defeating at a certain point and also the likes of george osborne who say no 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 just cut back the government deficit because really this is a debt crisis get rid of the bit of the debt we can control the government bit and then confidence will come back and everything will take care of itself where do you come out on that because i think you sound a bit gloomy about both analyses as, as offering a solution My underlying thesis is the debt won't be repaid in real terms, i.e. either people will default or that is not pay the money back in full, although they will inflate away the debt. So pay people back in the equivalent of monopoly money. So it's worth a lot less. And that's basically the solution we had in the 1930s that people defaulted outright or in the 1940s as you were saying earlier that inflation emerged and we got rid of the debt that way now this the problem with the particular situation facing the british and indeed the american governments is the old story about when you ask a yokel for directions and they say well i wouldn't start from here (laughs) once you have a deficit to gdp of 11 percent, as we did in 2010 then yes you seem it seems obvious that you should be cutting it but any reduction to nine percent eight percent counts as a fiscal contraction squeezes the economy but unless you unless you believe that we can go on to have 13 percent debt to gdp and then 15 at some point you have to shift direction and it's extraordinary difficult balance to pull off even labor argued that we should be have cut the deficit in half over the lifetime of the economy so you have to believe that for some reason going slightly faster is calamitous and going slightly slower is all right and it's it's hard to say that the real test comes of course if the markets lose all faith in you which they have of course in greece and spain um, then your interest rates shoot up and you face that particular problem of having to cut very savagely very quickly but, I mean, you're saying even the, 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 the cutting that George Osborne's um, proposing, he's already done a year of it, and now he's saying it's going to be another six or, or, or seven, could be enough to really put strain on, not just on the economy, but on 
on the politics. And so I'm I'm wondering where is the is there a, is there an international solution? Could that could we work with um, people like the Chinese who are still saving up at a time when we've got these debts? Well, my argument is that the system remakes itself eventually and that the creditor nation eventually sets the terms for a new system. So Britain, it was Sir Isaac Newton, indeed, who set up the gold standard in the 18th century. America set the terms of Bretton Woods because it was the creditor nation in the 20th century. So our new system that will emerge over the next 10 years or so, it's not next week, will be set by the creditor nation, which is going to be China. And that means that it'll be a system that looks as if as the Chinese like it. Now, you have, it sounds a bit complicated, a trilemma for uh, monetary policy. You can have uh, fixed exchange rates, you can set your own interest rates, and you can have free capital movements, but you can't have all three. So under the gold standard, we had fixed exchange rates, floating capital, free capital movements, but you had to adjust your interest rate to attract capital and keep it going. Under the current system, we have floating interest, floating exchange rates, sorry, but free capital movements and independent monetary policy. The Chinese have a managed exchange rate system and they restrict the flow of capital. They don't want the markets ruling. So it's quite possible that in 10 years' time, we will have something similar, a bargain between the Chinese and the Americans, say, in which the Chinese continue to fund the American deficit, but the Americans promise to limit that deficit and the Chinese in return promise to increase their exchange rate at a set rate. So you have a much more managed international monetary system, and that might involve some restrictions on capital. And here's another point which I hope comes out of the book very strongly. The last 40 years have been fantastic for the finance sector. Capital flowing all over the places, debt being created, asset prices soaring. The finance sector, which was always... Uh, seen before as a fairly dull sector where people weren't paid that much more than everybody else has suddenly created become masters of the universe. Maybe over the next 40 years that'll all change again, that finance will not be so dominant because we won't have the same capital flows, we won't have the same volatility of interest rates and exchange rates, and finance will be uh, less proud, as Churchill said, and industry more content. And finally, do you think, um, I mean, you sort of suggest there that it's highly likely that any new monetary order is going to be on Chinese terms because they're the people with the, with the money that the monetary order is um, based on. But I think I've read um, that after the Second World War, Keynes had hoped to have a more symmetric system whereby creditors, so the likes of Germany and China that are seem to be given to hoarding at the moment would uh, agree to spend a little more in, in the same way as the debtors would agree to restrain themselves. Could you imagine getting to something more symmetric like that? Or do you think China's got the whip hand and we're going to do it on their terms? I think it is possible because there's a kind of mutually assured destruction built into the system in that when China has three trillion of foreign exchange reserves, a lot of which are in America, if America did default, then China would obviously lose a lot of money. So you have kind of like a big debtor with a bank has a bit of control over the bank. And you're right, Keynes did propose that. And ironically enough, the deal was vetoed by the Americans, which thought as the creditor nation, it didn't want any restrictions. Now, of course, the Americans are the debtor nation. They'd love Keynes's system to be employed. They're saying creditors must adjust, just as in Europe we're saying the Germans must adjust. So in the long run, the creditors are piling up claims on the debtors that won't get paid back, not in real money. And so there's a bargain to be struck between creditors and debtors where the creditors give up some of their claims and the debtors change their ways. And that's eventually what's going to happen.
so there we have it a glimmer of an opportunity in a in a grim uh, economic scene um and philip's book paper promises money debt and the new world order is out now and published by alan lane and as they say in all good bookshops the producer today was phil maynard i'm tom clark and thanks very much indeed for listening nova is america's most watched science series you'll find it every night at 7:50 on pbs Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.